with you all. It's good to be gathered together to hear God's Word and to sing to one another. Uh, I invite you as we uh, continue in our worship, as we come to the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. We will focus this morning on verses 30 through 40. John chapter 6, verses 30 and 40, or through 40. And while you're turning there, we want to extend a very warm welcome to all of our visitors, first time and newcomers. Uh, We extend you a warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward to getting to know you a bit more. John chapter 6, we'll focus on verses 30 through 40, but let us pick up at verse 26 for the sake of remembering the context of where we've been. John 6, beginning in verse 26. Let us hear the Word of God. Jesus answered them, that is, the crowd who had sought Him across the sea. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's unite our hearts and pray that the Lord would be our help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, what a precious hymn we've just sung together, singing that never has there been love like the divine love shown to us in Christ that He laid in a tomb that should have been ours, that He is the light of the world and yet willingly came to be slain by the darkness of sinners, and that all of that was purposed, Father, for the glorification of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would, through the wicked intentions of sinners, rise from the dead victorious. That He would go into the grave not because of His own sins, but because He came to be the One who would bear our sins. And that He would wrestle victory from the grave and rise triumphant over sin once for all. Something that will never be repeated and never needs to be repeated. That He has risen And we know that He will never die again. And that He sits now in heaven at Your right hand, the glorious King of creation, 
and the King of Redemption. That this same One is the One who speaks to us this morning in Your Word, telling all of us that He Himself is the bread of life. That all the other things of this earth will perish. They cannot save us, but He Himself can bring us to God. He can give to us an everlasting salvation. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You for the Gospel. We pray that we would, as we sung in our final stanza, that we would be those who desire to sit here and sing of the glories of Christ. That we would ponder the glories of Christ in the Gospel. That we would consider the wonders of redemption and salvation. Father, we pray, we plead with You this morning for any who are here who are like these crowds, still unbelieving, still demanding more signs, more evidence, more reason to believe. We pray that You would open their hearts, that You would give them new life, that they would come to Christ knowing that all who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. May they see the freeness of grace, the glory of grace, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the chief of sinners. Father, be with Your people. Magnify Your name, we pray. Give us attentive hearts and minds as we now come to Your Word. And cause us to approach You through Your Word with reverent hearts that we would remember that we are approaching that which is holy. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come again this morning, picking up in John chapter 6. This is, if you remember from a few weeks ago, the day after the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus has now, with His disciples, made His way over to the other side of the sea, The disciples went there by boat. Jesus, you remember, went there walking upon the water. Meanwhile, on the other side of the sea where the feeding happened, the crowds wake up that morning and after much searching and much bewilderment, they cannot find Jesus on their side and so they decide to seek the Lord on the other side of the sea where they do eventually find Him in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it is here, this meeting place in Capernaum, where we have one of these excellent discourses in the Gospel of John, where Jesus, these crowds having come to Him, Jesus confronts these crowds on their own unbelief and their own impure motives for why they have sought Him. He tells them, as we read, to labor not for the food which perishes. That's what they wanted. They wanted more food. But he says, rather labor for the food that endures unto eternal life. To which they ask him, what works must we do to be working the works of God? To which Jesus replies to them in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe upon Him whom He has sent. Jesus commands their faith to be put in His own person. And we'll pick up now, having given a bit of reminder, we'll pick up in our exposition this morning at verse 30. We'll begin with exposition, then we'll uh, transition to our doctrine deduced, and then thirdly, to our application. But let's consider the exposition of the text. And uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to have it open at this point, especially to John chapter 6. As we consider what God is saying to us in verses 30 through 40, what it means. Beginning in verse 30, it says, Therefore, now remember, Jesus has just told them that to be doing the works of God, they must believe in Christ. And it says, Therefore, they said to him, the crowd said to him, What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe it, what work will you do? Now, brothers and sisters, if you, if you remember at all what we've read earlier in the chapter, this is almost unbelievable unbelief. 
it seems unthinkable that these crowds would even think to have the to think such an audacious thing, let alone to actually say it to him. Because this dialogue happens the very following day after Jesus has just fed the crowd of 5,000 of which they themselves were a part. They themselves benefited from that miracle that Christ performed. And we know that, it, that they were convinced that it was a miracle because you remember verse 15, they tried to take Him by force to make Him king. Right? You don't do that if you think that really what just happened was just some sort of you know, sly magic trick. And yet, the very next day, they have the audacity to demand that Jesus prove His credentials. What work will you perform that we may see it in order to believe you? And I know that that's astonishing to us at one level as you read of how the darkness of men's sin causes them to just ignore and suppress the truth of God. But we ought at the same time not to be surprised because there's nothing new under the sun. Men and women and children in our day commit the same sort of suppression of the truth. Every day, men and women wake up and God has fashioned them with hundreds and thousands of evidences all around them in the created world that there is a God with whom they have to do. Men and women even carry within themselves thousands of evidences that display God's glory and His wisdom and how He has created man, and yet men have the audacity to ask the question, what evidence is there that there is a God? As though that's up for debate. Just as men deny every day God's revelation in the natural realm, so also as we see here, men, if they are still in the darkness, if they are lovers of darkness, they also suppress the proofs of special revelation. But not only do they demand a sign, they even imply here that His previous sign is not good enough. Look at verse 31. They now give a reason for why they want a sign, and they even quote Scripture to Him. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness or in the desert, As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, we have Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses in the law, but You have seemed to bring us a new doctrine. You have told us that to be doing the works of God, we need to believe in You. But so far, Jesus, Your works haven't surpassed the works of Moses. And so why should we believe You? Right? They're, they're thinking, you fed a crowd of 5,000 once, but Moses fed the whole company of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness with manna from heaven. I mean, after all, Jesus, your bread didn't come dropping from heaven. You just somehow multiplied what was already supplied to you. And so they're essentially saying, show us a better work than Moses so that we may believe you. Now, it's at this point that Jesus was, had every right, if He had wanted and desired, that He could have just turned away from these unbelieving crowds. Right, you remember from the other Gospels where He says it's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign. And yet, even though they are most unworthy of it, instead He condescends to teach them. Verse 32 Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus is countering their quotation of this Scripture. They were missing the point. They were putting far too much uh, weight and giving far too much credit to the human instrument. Right? They're saying to Him, Moses gave us bread from heaven. What will you do? Rather than remembering that it was God who gave Israel manna from heaven and that Moses was merely the humble human instrument. 
And Jesus remind, or teaches and corrects them here that just as it was not Moses, but My Father who gave Israel manna from heaven, so also it is My Father who now gives you a greater gift than He gave through Moses. Not bread for your stomachs, which could not keep you from dying and your fathers from dying, but he's, Jesus is telling them the Father has now given you the greatest gift, the gift of His Son. Verse 33, notice the surprise, it would have been surprising to them. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right? They're, they're so enamored with the physical bread that descended from heaven that they are not seeing their need for Him who was true bread. The Son of God who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. And th this is again picking up the thought from verse 27 if you glance back there. They sought Him for the things which perish. They crossed the sea because they were hungry and they liked the bread that Jesus gave to them. They wanted from Him merely that which is temporal. But Christian and non-Christian, listen to me, sinners need something far greater than that which perishes. Here they are. They're perishing in their sin. They lie open to the judgment of God. And standing in front of them is the bread of God who can give them eternal life. And they're thinking, please give us more of this bread for our stomachs. Bread will not save their souls. Nothing of this world can save the sinner's soul. Nothing that is perishing in this world can cure us of the disease of sin and death. And Jesus will remind them of this very thing in verse 49 when He tells them, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but guess what? They died. What God gave through Moses was a gracious provision for Israel's physical sustenance, but the gift of Christ to the world is of infinite, infinitely better... Um, it is an infinitely greater gift that Christ, the true bread, comes into this world to give spiritual life to sinners who are perishing. Eternal life. A life that cannot be snuffed out. Such that, as he'll say in John 11, the one who has union with Christ by faith, even though he die, yet shall he live. Rightly does Christ compare Himself to bread because it is He who imparts to sinners and nourishes and sustains in sinners that life for which we were created, a life of fellowship and communion with God. But these crowds are still thinking of earthly things. Verse 40, uh, 34. Verse 34, Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. It's very, very similar to how the woman at the well responded when she thought she understood but didn't understand. And she says, Lord, uh, sir, give me this water that I may not have to come here to draw water. And we'll see in the coming verses that when they say, Lord, give us this bread always, they are not interested in the kind of bread that He speaks of. Verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. He's saying to them, this bread, He's trying to make it extremely plain for them, this bread that I speak of is not merely something that I give to you like God gave through Moses. I am the bread of life. It's Me. My person and My work which I am accomplishing at the command of My Father, I am the Savior of the world whom you need. Who you need. And He's telling them, you don't need any of the earthly things that I could give you. And I could if I wanted. You need Me. 
You need union with Christ by faith in Christ. He's telling them that the hunger and the thirst that you need to have is a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God which only comes through faith in the Son of God. And it's at that point that he then confronts their unbelief. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet do not believe. They said to Him in verse what was it, 29? Or no, 30, 30. They said to Him, Jesus, what sign do You show us that we may see and believe in You? And He now responds here, You have seen Me. You guys want to act like I haven't given you enough proof and light. I have. You saw Me yesterday in the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. You heard My words yesterday and you're hearing the same words today and yet you do not believe. Such is the deep darkness of man enslaved to sin that even Christ incarnate Christ come in the flesh speaking the words of heaven and performing the signs of heaven, those things by themselves will not convert the sinful heart of man without an internal work of grace in the heart by the Holy Spirit. And it's to that subject that He then next turns. They have seen Him. They have heard Him. They have ample evidence for why they ought to believe, and yet they are unbelieving. But lest these crowds feel, lest they cause, lest they think that they are making Christ feel defeated or disheartened by their unbelief, Christ proceeds now to proclaim to them and to resign himself to the soft pillow of God's sovereign decree of election. Verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. What a statement in the face of unbelief. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. This is election and effectual calling. And he's proclaiming it to unbelievers in the face of their unbelief. And He's saying to them, though you do not believe in Me, make no mistake, I have a definite company of people whom My Father has given to Me and they will come to Me. This phrase, those whom the Father has given to Me, is a phrase that will pop up many, many more times in the Gospel of John. In fact, in chapter 17, Jesus uses this phrase seven times. Speaking of those whom the Father has given to Him. And He's very explicit about what, uh, who this group is. In chapter 17, verse 2, He declares that He will give eternal life to as many as the Father has given to Him. Chapter 17, verse 9, he says explicitly, I pray not for the world, but for them whom you have given me, for they are yours. Those whom the Father has given the Son are those people whom God chose before the foundation of the world to be drawn to the Son in time and to receive most certainly from Christ eternal life. And Jesus says in the face of their unbelief to this crowd, your unbelief is no hindrance or discouragement to My mission because it is impossible that one single person whom My Father has given Me will fail to come to Me. George Whitfield said, I'm paraphrasing, he said, so certain is the reality that Christ will not fail to save every single sheep He came for. Whitfield said that if right now somehow in heaven it were discovered that a single one of His sheep was missing, God the Father would send Him back down to earth in order to fetch Him. 
Jesus will say in chapter 10, My sheep hear My voice. They know Me and follow Me. And I have sheep who are not of this fold and I must bring them also. Notice though, Christian, that He says, all that the Father gives to Me will come to Me. Not might come to Me. Not may come to Me, but will come to Me. There is a certainty about this assertion. Why? Because the mission of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was not to accomplish merely a potential salvation, but an actual salvation for definite, actual individuals. The Father did not send the Son on a mission into this world unsure of how successful that mission would be. He didn't send the Son into the world on a mission to, to merely make salvation possible but rather to actually save His people from their sins. Verse 39, This is the will of the Father who sent Me, that of all He has given Me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. That, that verse, verse 39, is akin to the golden chain in Romans chapter 8. The will, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, and the will of the Father cannot be thwarted. This is the will of the Father. All that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son, Jesus says. And of those who come to the Son, Jesus says, I will in no wise turn them away. None of them will be lost. And of all those who come to the Son, Jesus says, He will raise them up on the last day to the resurrection of life. Christian, what we'll, we'll talk about this in our doctrine and application, but what a pillow this is to rest our heads upon when facing unbelief. This is the reason that there are any Christians in the world right now, period. Election from before the foundation of the world and effectual calling, calling are not a cause for us to grow discouraged in our evangelism. right? Jesus isn't discouraged here. Belief in election should not cause us to, to reason, well, if they're not elect, then they can't be saved. Rather, this is the foundation of any hope at all in our evangelism because it assures us that salvation is of the Lord and God will not fail to get His people. Verse 39, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And verse 40, he says what that will is. This is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Last, last thing, brief comment in our exposition. I skipped over it. Verse 37, the second half. After saying all that the Father gives to me will come to me, he says in verse 37, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the free offer of the Gospel. Right alongside the declaration of the divine decree of election, Christ assures sinners even those who were presently disbelieving in Him, He assures sinners that whoever comes to Him by faith will without a doubt receive His warmest welcome and reception. Verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, election belongs to the secret counsels of God but the offer of Christ to sinners is universally proclaimed to all as Jesus modeled. Now, let's turn to our doctrine. Having considered what the text means, what is happening here, how we should understand it, let's turn now to doctrine deduced. How are we instructed theologically from this text? And I have two things 
that I want to draw out this morning, and then we'll turn to our application. Two things, two headings under doctrine deduced. Number one, Jesus taught and took comfort in the doctrine of divine election. So that's number one. Jesus taught and took comfort in the doctrine of divine election. The doctrine of election, God's sovereign election, and what I mean by that is that God chose from before the foundation of the world a certain people to be saved, and that Christ then came into this world taking on flesh to save that particular people, and that the Holy Spirit then applies Christ to that particular people, that doctrine of divine election is a doctrine, Christian, that is undeniably biblical. It is pervasive. It is taught both by the prophets of the Old Testament and by the apostles of the New Testament. And perhaps more than anyone else, it is taught by the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It is not a doctrine that is concealed or ambiguous, and it is not a doctrine that causes the biblical authors to blush with embarrassment. Because, Christian, it is a doctrine that glorifies God. Because it reminds us that God is the potter and we, His creation, are the clay. And it reminds us, as God said to Moses, and Paul will pick up from Moses, that God will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy and show compassion to those He will show compassion. And brothers and sisters, I know know how this doctrine is looked upon by many in our day, but brothers and sisters, really, we must not be ashamed of this doctrine though it may be hated by many, even including professing Christians. Christian, we must not be ashamed of this doctrine for this. There are others, but I will give you this primary reason. Because I am convinced that it is the erosion of this doctrine which has caused today's Gospel to become such a man-centered message. Most people today think of the Gospel as though man is in charge. As though God has done everything He can to save sinners and He's just hoping that all of us will give our hearts to Jesus and that when it doesn't happen, God just kind of has to accept the disappointment that He can't win us all. And it makes the sinner feel like he's in the driver's seat and that God is just working the best that He can, pleading with us, but at the end of the day, whether or not God really accomplishes all His good pleasure is up to us. But Jesus will not have that here. And He will not let these crowds think that. He doesn't let these crowds think here that their unbelief is some wet blanket on His party. Like, like He's just sitting in the corner, you know, the kid in the corner bummed out because no one wanted to join Him. That view of God and the Gospel and redemption reduces Christ to a hopeful Savior. Right? He hopes sinners will come to Him. It reduces Him to a willing Savior which is true, but it reduces him to a weak Savior. And it denies that he is a powerful Savior. It gives us a view of God that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are merely those who try, but don't necessarily succeed. And Jesus refuses that view. Instead, He lays His head on the comforting pillow of God's sovereign decree 
to save His people. And He says to them, in the face of unbelief, all whom the Father gives to Me will come to Me. And He'll get even more confrontational and explicit. In verse 65, at the very end of this chapter, He will say to them, the reason you do not believe in Me is because it has not been granted to you by My Father. You know why He says that to them? He says that to them lest they gloat. Lest these unbelieving crowds should think to themselves, you know what? He refused to be king the way we wanted him to be king. And so now we're going to be a wet blanket on him by refusing to make him the king he wants to be. It doesn't work like that. Unbelief does not rob God of any of his glory. In fact, Jesus prayed in Matthew 11, verse 25. And He prayed this publicly. He prayed, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And He says, yes, Father, for such was Your good pleasure. Christ roots he, he thanks the Father for both election and reprobation, and He roots both of them in the good pleasure of God. Christian, here's what I want to say to you. We'll open this up more in our application. We do not bring to the world a message of an impotent God. We do not bring to the world a message of a God who has tried and you hear that. I've heard people say things to unbelievers like, God has cast His vote. Satan has cast his vote. And now you must cast your vote and break the tie. We bring a message of accomplished redemption. That salvation is of the Lord. Redemption was and is His idea, and it is not just something he, uh, he hoped to accomplish, but it is something He did indeed accomplish. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were united in their plan to save a particular people for their own glory. That brings us to the second point of doctrine. Second point of doctrine. Right alongside the truth of election, we are taught that Jesus invited all without exception to come to Him. Okay? Right alongside the doctrine of, His doctrine of election, we are taught here that Jesus also invited all without exception to come to Him by faith. Look at how many times He offers Himself to these unbelieving crowds. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall never hunger. Verse 37, Whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. And again, verse 40, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Christian, this is vital for us to understand. While Jesus believed wholeheartedly in divine election. At the same time, never has this world seen an evangelist more eager than the Lord Jesus to sow the seed of the Gospel to whoever would listen. Whether in public or in private. Whether it was to the religious hypocrite like Nicodemus in chapter 3, or the out-and-out -out sinner like the woman at the well in chapter 4. With all of His might and all of His intellect and all of His wisdom and with all of His opportunity, Christ invited sinners to come to Him that they may have life. Every sinner, no matter what kind, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave or free, they are not only welcome 
But Jesus urged them again and again to come to him that they may have life. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Election is not fatalism. Okay? It's a very common mistake, especially people who are new to Reformed theology, that they they make some bad connections. And I would seek to guard you against that. Election is not fatalism. In fact, election rightly understood does not lead to a cold and closed-handed hoarding of the Gospel, but rather it frees our tongues to speak of the glories of Christ to whoever will hear us because we know that God has a people for Himself. And we know that the way God gets His people, that the way Christ's sheep follow the shepherd is by hearing the voice of the shepherd. And therefore, we don't just say, it doesn't matter if I say anything. God's going to get His elect. We say God has an elect people and therefore I must be the voice of the shepherd and speak to men on behalf of Christ that they might be brought into the fold. And brothers and sisters, we as Christians, get to tell sinners literally the greatest news there is on this planet. Not only do we have to tell people about Christ, we get to tell sinners about Christ. Verse 37, the second half. We get to tell every sinner on the face of this planet these words that whoever comes to Christ, it's a divine promise, Christ will in no wise cast out. That's a divine promise. Those words cannot prove untrue. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. And my brother and sister, Christian, but also my unbelieving friend, There is an ocean of hope in those words. Christian, you can look the chief of sinners in the eye. You can look those in the eye who think they have out-sinned the grace of God. You can look the person in the eye who has just come off a night of wretched immoral rebellion and blasphemy against God. And you can look the person in the eye who thinks they have done the unforgivable. And you can say to them without any mental reservation and without any disingenuousness, if you right this moment come to Christ, He will never turn you away. Because there are no conditions that the sinner first has to meet to make him fit to come to Christ. And the flip side of that, not only do you have to meet, do you not have to meet conditions, there are no valid excuses that the sinner can give to Christ for why he is disqualified from applying to Christ for grace. Right? What, what valid excuse can the sinner come up with for why he is disqualified to come to Christ? Is it because you're a sinner? Is that a reason you think that you can't come to Christ for grace? 1 Timothy chapter 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the only kind of people Christ came into this world to save. Bad sinners. Rotten sinners. Blasphemous sinners. Murderous sinners. Sinners who cannot even bear to look themselves in the eye or look themselves in the mirror. And sinners who cannot bear to think about the things that they have done in the past. Christ says to you, If you come to Me, I will never cast you out. 
Christian, you get to say that to anyone. John Bunyan saw in this verse the glorious freeness of grace that Christ has towards sinners. In fact, Bunyan, I learned this this week. Bunyan wrote an entire book on John 6.37 called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And that book was so massively influential on Andrew Fuller. Some of you will know these names. Some of you can look them up. That Andrew Fuller wrote the book The Gospel of Full Acceptation, which that book you might know was against the hyper-Calvinism of his day. And that book was the catalyst that started the modern missionary movement with William Carey and Adoniram Judson and countless others. And it's amazing how Fuller's book, influenced by Bunyan's book, influenced by John 6.37, the free offer of the Gospel to anyone who would believe was what God used to re, use as a catalyst to rekindle a passion for missions to the nations. But that, that aside, Bunyan wrote this. This is an excerpt from his book, Come, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. He wrote, quote, For in this word, in no wise, he's making comments on this section that I will in no wise cast him out. Bunyan says, for in this word, in no wise, or for, excuse me, start over. For this word, in no wise, cuts the throat of all objections. And it was dropped by the Lord Jesus that with that very purpose, and to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief, belief. And it is, as it were, the sum of all the promises neither can any objection be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not answer. Bunyan, is, he's reasoning with the sinner. And he's saying, I know you have a thousand reasons in your head for why you're saying, but because of this, I cannot come to Christ. And he's saying these words were dropped by the lips of the Lord Jesus to fight that thought that you're disqualified from coming to Christ. And Bunyan then writes a long dialogue of the sinner and how Bunyan would counsel him. I'll give you a snapshot. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. I am a backsliding sinner. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. And on and on. But I have sinned against light. But I have sinned against mercy. But I have no good thing to bring with me to give to Christ. And to all of them, Bunyan replies, I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. This is the unsurpassed good news of the Gospel, Christian. And it's what we get to tell sinners. That brings us to our application. Let's transition, closing off doctrine to do. So let's turn finally to our application. I have two main sections or topics by which I want to apply this text. And they follow our points of doctrine. Number one, I want us to... I want to apply to us so that we might respond appropriately to the doctrine of election. And secondly, how we ought to respond to the doctrine of the indiscriminate invitation of the Gospel. And so number one, regarding election, Christian, first of all, praise God for election. Right? Don't be ashamed. I know we're the, we're the exception in our day We're those Christians and people have all sorts of ideas. Most of them are not true about what they think we really believe about God. Christian, thank God for election. Election is not a doctrine God gave us so that we might blush about it. After all, He's given us at least two chapters in the Bible which are virtually just about this doctrine. He gave it to us as a doctrine to bless God's name for. 
Thank God that He has decreed to save sinners effectually. First of all, Christian, praise Him in regards to your own salvation because if God had not decreed to elect and effectually call His people, you wouldn't be in Christ. Right? We sing in, in how sweet and awful is the place that unless the same love that spread the feast sweetly drew me in, I would have still refused to taste. And I would have perished in my sin. Christian, that is true without any exaggeration. There would not be a single Christian apart from the election of God. But rather, God's election from eternity past Christian is the fountain from which flows your willing or flowed your willingness to humble yourself and to come to Christ by faith. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? This is the answer to that. Secondly, under this first heading of election, I want to speak to you, unbeliever. Let God's election do its humbling work in your soul by allowing it to cause you to realize that your unbelief in the Gospel does not one iota cripple God from fulfilling His purposes for His glory. Your rejection of Christ as King does not one iota change the fact that Christ is King and He is the One through whom God will judge the world. Unbeliever, hear the Word of God. Hear the words of Christ to unbelievers. He is telling you, you must humble yourself. If you think that you're not believing the Gospel is somehow robbing God of some glory He wishes He could get, you need to realize, sinner, that even the judgment of the wicked shall praise God and glorify God. You have nothing that you can take away from God, but you have everything that you can gain from God. And so come to Christ by faith. Even you. You've maybe sinned against light for 70, 80 years. And you've always had the the same reasons you always go back to for why the Gospel can't be true. And you've made fun of Christians. And you've made fun of your family members. Christ who sits in heaven as the King of glory who is returning to judge the righteous and the wicked through His Word this morning is exhorting your soul. And He is saying, turn to Me before it is too late. Why would you die? Why would you perish? He who comes to Me, I will in no wise cast out. Thirdly, Christian, Praise God for His election, not only for what that means for your own soul, but because this doctrine of election is the only haven of rest for every evangelist in Christ. The doctrine of election tells us that as we sow the seed of God's Word and as we, as we see the crowds as it were, and all of our, or it seems like almost all of our audiences remaining unbelieving. And we see how many there are in this world that do not believe. And it can feel at times like all of our labors are in vain. The doctrine of election reminds us of this. 2 Timothy 2.19 That this solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those whom are His. Christian, the eternal purpose of God cannot fail or be frustrated. Everyone that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. The devil cannot snatch them. 
Though the gates of hell fight and agonize to keep the gospel from plundering the kingdom of darkness and Christ getting His people, the devil and the gates of hell will not be successful. God will get His own. And so Christian, take heart. As you sow the seed of God's Word, and there are times when you feel like you're doing it in vain, remember this, that you will cast it upon some of that soil which God has prepared from eternity. And so take heart. Take courage. Don't be anxious. But persevere, not in the the power of your persuasive abilities, but in the power of God. Jesus says to His disciples after the rich man walks away and He says, it's impossible for the rich man to enter heaven. It's, It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle and the Disciples ask, well, who can be saved? And Jesus reminds them, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That brings us to our second point of application as we come to a close. Application number two. Christian, spread the Gospel far and wide. Spread the Gospel far and wide. I mentioned it briefly uh, earlier. I want to... Maybe in the future, in this chapter, actually, we can have a, a whole application on the implications of this for missions. I mentioned um, Bunyan and, and Andrew Fuller and the impact that they had. So we'll leave that temporarily to the side, but I don't want that to be forgotten this morning, the implications this has for missions. But Christian, wherever you are, whether it be in foreign lands where Christ has not been named, or in your family or your neighborhood or your workplaces where Christ has not been named, spread far and wide the Gospel. Christian. Reformed Christian. God forbid, and I mean this, God forbid that our Reformed theology should ever decline and become deformed into a type of hyper-Calvinism which causes us to be stingy with the offer of Christ. I want our Calvinism, if you want to call it that, Reformed theology, whatever name you put to it, I want our Calvinism to be a biblically robust theology, a warm theology that overflows with the rich, sweet offers of Christ to sinners. Remember this, Christian. God's election is discriminate. But God's offer of Christ to sinners is not discriminate. And if God is indiscriminate in His offer of Christ to the world, who are we to hide Christ from sinners? Christian, do not be afraid to plead with to dispute with, I use that word in the best sense, to discuss with, to reason with, and whatever other lawful form of communication, do not be afraid to do whatever needs to be done to plead with sinners that they would leave the darkness and come to the light of Christ. Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, verse 10 He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And Christian, we should have the same attitude that we would endure and take up whatever means God gives us that we might plead with sinners that the elect would come in and be saved. Brothers and sisters, let us take up all the means God has given us. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let us take up the weapon of prayer. Let us endure inconvenience and wrongful treatment for the sake of pleading with sinners to come to Christ. No matter how long they've been an enemy of the truth, no matter how deep-seated it seems their rebellion against God has become, 
There is no rebellion God cannot break by the power of His Gospel and the power of the Spirit. Right? Romans 10, how will they believe on Him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Lastly, and we'll close in prayer. Lastly, let me, let me close with this, what I think is a very important word to parents. Okay? Parents, grandparents as well, anyone who's around children, God has given you opportunity to be a, a, an influence for them for Christ and the Gospel. Let me close with this. Parents and whoever else, evangelize your children. Evangelize with zeal your children. Lay the beauties of Christ before them and the beauties of His Gospel before them regularly. Let them know that the feast of the Lord, the the table of the Gospel, let them know that that is a table they are welcome to come and to eat at. Don't be those who are closed-handed and hoard the Gospel. Don't ever give them the impression that Christ is not for them. Don't ever confuse election with how we evangelize and, and cause them to think that, well, if they're not elect, then there's no reason for me to really tell them to come to Christ. That's backwards. The way we make our calling and election sure is by our coming to Christ and abiding in Christ. So listen to me, parents. And I'm, I'm especially speaking to those here who you might be new to Reformed doctrine. Perhaps you're hearing about uh, election for the first time or you know it's one of your first times and you're still working through it and you've got a thousand thoughts running through your mind And I want to warn you as a pastor that some of those thoughts might not be good biblical thoughts as you wrestle with God's election. And amongst those thoughts might be one like, well, if my kids aren't elect, then there's no point in me showing them the way of Christ and urging them to go that way. Listen to me. Even if you don't understand how this all works, And you don't know how God's election. You're convinced of that, but you don't know how that works with we should still preach the Gospel to everyone. Even if you don't understand it all, hear me, follow the example of Christ and every Old and New Testament writer and lay before your children that they must and may come to Christ. That Christ stands ready to receive them. I would save you from the damage that is very hard to undo. And I've seen it. And it's been the heartache of many, many parents who in hindsight, they look back on their younger years as parents and they realize they they allowed their doctrine of election, which was a misunderstanding, to cause them to be stingy with Christ with their children. And they wish they could go back and offer to their children a warm Christ. A Christ that stands ready. And so hear me. Teach your children. Teach them to pray. Teach them to sing hymns. Teach them who God is. Teach them what it is to follow the Lord and invite them to come alongside you because the Gospel is not just for adults and plead and urge them to follow Christ right alongside mom and dad. Teach them to go to Christ with their sins. Teach them to run to the cross and to run to the throne of grace for sanctifying grace. And then pray that God from heaven would use your feeble efforts to bring it savingly home to their hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would convict us. That You would teach us. 
that you would encourage us by the gospel. Father, we, as your people, we look back on our days of darkness and before we knew Christ. And truly, you know even better than we know, but to some extent, we know our own hearts and there are things that we cannot even bear to think about that we are guilty of and high-handed sins, and deceitful sins, and hurting others, and how, how many countless ways we have trampled Your glory. We've sinned against our brother and our sister who are made in the image of God, and we know that these things ought not to be so. Father, we know that, not as we ought, but to some extent, and yet we also... We know the glorious truth of the Gospel that Christ received even us and still receives us as we are still those sinners who sin against His mercy and sin against light. Father, thank You for Christ and thank You for the Gospel. Thank You that You did not leave us in our our sin. Thank You for electing grace that led to our effectual calling and the power of Your Spirit bringing us from death to life. Father, we thank You for the whole of salvation that You will perfect that which You have begun. That not one of Christ's sheep will fail to make it to glory. We know that He gives eternal life to all those who You have given to Him. That He prays not for this world, but for those whom whom You have given to Him. And because of His prayers for us, we will not be lost. We thank You, Father. We pray that You would write Your Word on our hearts. Help us to be instruments in Your hands to apply and to preach the Gospel to others. That we would learn how to rightfully divide Your Word when it is appropriate and helpful to emphasize Your election and when it is appropriate and helpful to emphasize the free offer of the Gospel We pray that You would teach us, make us more useful, keep us from wrongly dividing Your Word and wrongly applying Your Word. Father, bless our meeting this this afternoon. Bless our meal together. Be with us as, as a church. We pray that You'd continue to give us unity, cause us to abound in love for one another. We pray that You'd write Your Word upon each and every heart here today. Draw in those who are yet outside of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.